Well, thank you so much for another opportunity to share from God's Word what He might say to us about the nations, what He might say to you about His call to the nations. And again, I don't know the call He has for each one of you. I don't know specifically what He has in His plan for the world that includes you, but I know there is a role. Every believer has a role to play. And because I'm so excited about missions, it has been a part of my entire adult life. The Lord saved me in my mid-20s. I wish I had time to just take a night and tell you my testimony, but it would take a night. I grew up in a, in a evangelical church, Southern Baptist Church. My mom was organist. My dad was a Sunday school teacher and, and deacon. And sometimes I say we were there every time the doors were open, but we were that family that opened the doors, that we were always there. And I just grew up doing what good kids were supposed to do and thought I was a believer, but I really wasn't. Went out in the world when I was late teenager, began to rebel. The Lord saved me in my mid-20s through some really remarkable events. I saved Mary a few months after that. We began to grow by leaps and bounds, but included in that growth period was doing short-term mission trips. God began to speak to us about this was what he would have for us. Now, I began to feel it First, my aunt and uncle were here with us for the sessions last night and uh, this morning. They're, they've gone back now, but they, they were my heroes growing up. And I just knew if you're a radical believer, uh, this is what you want to do. You want to give your life to the Lord in some sort of a sacrificial way. And they were sort of role models for me. Little by little, Mary began to feel the same kind of call. And then our entire adult life, that's, we've been involved in missions. I love missions. I am always traveling to the mission field. I'm speaking to mission or mission orientation or missionary training, or I'm taking mission teams, or I'm speaking elsewhere. I love it. I'm always reading missionary biographies. I have them in my, my carry-on. I have them on my nightstand. I have them in my Kindle. To me, it's Christianity with skin on. You get to see how God leads people through difficult times, how he brings them to the other side, and it's exciting for me. And so it would be really easy for me to come up here and just tell you about God's call to missions and what an amazing life it is, and it's filled with joy, and you got to go do it, and if you don't, you're really missing out. And I can do that because I feel that. But I also realize, because when I see my students, our own missionaries, my own son and daughter-in-law and four grandchildren, when I see them going through difficult times or other missionary friends with other agencies, or perhaps they were former students, I realize that God calls some people to missions in a very costly, sacrificial way that most of us would not describe as Disney World or a fun day at the park. It is a difficult life for some people. And I don't want to back up to that, and I don't want to be up here being this bait-and-switch kind of salesman that just holds up a call to missions as if it's the best thing since night baseball. You got to go do it. It's a wonderful life. And it is, because God has put that desire in your heart. But I don't want to hide the fact that it is a stony road that we have to walk sometimes. There are sacrifices in any of the missionaries that are here for this conference will tell you that. And part of the reason is because this is a fallen world. It is a dark place. And the enemy has held it in darkness for a long time. And missionaries are people that go and they shine light in places that he has held in darkness for a, for a long time. And when you are shining light of the gospel, 
you are his enemy, and spiritual warfare will come into your life. The devil hates you. He has a horrible plan for your life. He wants to destroy your life. He would love to take your salvation or to kill you or to do all kinds of things. Thankfully, we read in the book of Job that he has no more control other than the Lord allows him for the testing of our faith or to fulfill his plans in the world. But we do know that there is spiritual warfare that comes to God's people when they're shining light in dark places. Now, here's the deal. If you're going through life, and you are just sitting in the canoe of life with your arms folded, just sort of floating along, since this is a fallen world, you don't float upstream, right? You're going to float downstream. You're going to go the way of the world that's never toward godliness in an automatic way. Toward godliness requires discipline. Toward godliness or doing God's will in a dark world requires sacrifice. In fact, a friend of mine used to explain it this way. He said the difference between the broad way and the narrow way is not so much that you come to a fork and, well, I'm going to take the narrow way and go this way. He said, no, it's more like a multi-lane highway. That's the broad way. Cars just flying in this direction. And the narrow way is that little stripe that comes up the middle of the road, the opposite direction. And as we take that, the devil and his way of the world is constantly bumping up against us and causing difficulties. And he said, in your daily life, if the devil's not regularly hitting up against you, it could be that you're going the same way that he is. When you turn around and you're striving after the Lord being glorified in his world, there will be difficulties that come to your life. But when you're floating down the stream, you're not going to have those difficulties because the devil knows that if he's got a Christian who is just floating through life and is not doing him any harm or the kingdom any good, he's not going to bring difficulty to you because when he does, he knows you're going to fall on your knees and you're going to cry out, Lord, help me. And when you do, you're going to draw near to the Lord. And it is a truth that the devil trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. He doesn't want you there. He knows that's where your power is. And so he will let you Go along with an easy kind of life. And then you have these crazy people like me who come here and call you to leave that wonderful life that you've kind of developed in sort of that comfort zone and the predictable, ordered existence that you have. Not that your life is just a bed of, of roses, but we can kind of create a comfort zone. And people sometimes call you to consider setting that aside and going down the narrow way to a hard life. I want to think about someone that God called to do that very thing tonight. As we think about piercing the darkness and specifically about God's calling and what it looks like in the Bible, think with me about the calling that came to the prophet Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah was, well, we could, co could compare him to a very unpopular Billy Graham or a missionary who is preaching the gospel in a very difficult place. The weeping prophet, we refer to him. He was kind of like a, an inner city street preacher, one of those doomsday prophets, you know, with the sandwich board things, turn or burn, fly or fry, get right or get left, one of those kinds of guys that nobody wants to listen to because he's a little uh, off the page. Jeremiah always had a difficult message. You look at with me in the first chapter of Jeremiah, we're just going to walk through a few verses in the time that we have and think about his call and what it required. He was a contemporary of Habakkuk. 
And Habakkuk did not have always the heavy, hard messages that Jeremiah had. He might have been a little jealous that Habakkuk seemed to have happier words from the Lord. But in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Jeremiah, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. You remember Saul's the first king, and then David, and then Solomon. But after Solomon, there's a division between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Benjamin and Judah were faithful for the southern kingdom. They, they were the ones that were down south. Benjamin is the area from which came the prophet Jeremiah. He was a prophet during the sad time of Judah's rebellion. The northern kingdom, you remember, had fallen in 721, and now we're almost 100 years later, 626, when the call comes to Jeremiah. Five years after he is called, the, the Torah is discovered in 621, and King Josiah launches sort of a reformation. He was kind of like the, the Martin Luther of his day. The prophets, you remember, had warned over and over and over if they didn't repent, they would be sent into exile, and that had happened when the northern kingdom went into exile. And even the southern kingdom, we will see throughout Jeremiah's ministry, they don't repent, and they are taken into exile as well. And so now this exile of the southern kingdom for this weeping prophet Jeremiah became a very difficult time of ministry. He was a prophet to the people. What is, can you be a prophet today? A priest, we will often say, is someone who represents the people to God. But a prophet is someone who represents God to the people. He speaks God's word, God's message to them. God still has prophets today in that sense. Not someone who foretells the future, but someone who foretells God's word, and that's the calling that came to Jeremiah. Look at verses four and five. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. The word of the Lord came to me. This is a formula that you see over and over in Jeremiah. How does the word of the Lord come to you? Have you ever stopped to ask that? I mean, certainly we read his word. This is his revealed will, his revealed word to us. The Bible does not contain God's word. The Bible is God's word. God's word is to us the very word of the living God, and he speaks to us through it, certainly. So we read it. We hear it preached. Some of you have your favorite radio preachers. I do too. Maybe you listen to particular podcasts of preachers. Maybe you love to have uh, the Bible taught to you here in this church. I certainly hope so. Maybe you do your own home devotions. But when you think about the ways that God's word comes to you, that's important because we all from time to time realize that we need to discern specifically about a big decision or a major step. What is God's will for me in this? Anybody who is a minister in, in any ministry today, whether it's college ministry, church ministry, missions, 
academic ministry, whatever it is, will tell you that's the number one question we get from people. Because that's usually at a life change stage for most of the people that are students. And what they'll ask is, how can I know God's will for my life? Now, sometimes they want to know what is God's will for my life so they can put it on the table with their other options and sort of decide what they want to do. But some people are genuinely, sincerely trying to figure out what is God's will for me. In some cases, it's very plain. This is the will of the Lord for you, even your sanctification, Paul says in Thessalonians, that we should abstain from our, we, we, we should refrain and abstain from forms of sin like uh, idolatry, sexual immorality. There are things that are very clearly God's will, but that's not what we're talking about, is it? You've got a big decision to make, or maybe God is stirring your heart in here. You know, we're empty nesters now. Kids are in college. Kids are married. Should we? Would it be crazy for us to leave mid-career and go and finish well on the field somewhere and help advance the work in some place? Would it just be off the page crazy to, to sell that place we have at the lake, to sell the extra car we don't really need now? And give that money to missions? How, how would we know? How do we really know God's will for our life? And so in that book that was mentioned, The Missionary Call, the second chapter, a lot of people who have no plans for missions, whatever, but have told me that that chapter has been helpful to them as they've tried to answer that question. Because that's really what I'm trying to unpack in that chapter of, chapter two of that book is, how do I know God's will for my life? Let me just tell you quickly what they are. That's not where the message is tonight, and this is not going to be an extra message I'm going to touch, tuck in. I just want you to know there are not three easy steps, one, two, three, and there you go. You have God's will for your life. These are more like ingredients in a cake, and the cake is God's will for your life. If I'm going to try to discern what God's will for my life is, how do I know, how, what, what things do I need to consider? First, if you want to know God's will, you need to know God. Now, I don't mean that, don't say that facetiously or in a, a teasing kind of way. Elizabeth Elliot used to say a lot of people are more concerned about the product than they are the source of the product. That is, they just want to know God's will, but not necessarily spend a lot of time with God. Mary and I, as I mentioned last night, we've been married for 40 years. We know what each other's thinking. We have conversations sometimes without saying anything. We finish each other's sentences. You do that too. How can you do that? We've spent a lot of time together probably a lot more than she wishes she had, but we've spent a lot of time together. The ancient Chinese would say of a very, very good friend, we've eaten a pound of salt together. Now, it was important because the ancient Chinese could also commit suicide by eating a pound of salt. So to say we have eaten a pound of salt together means we have shared table fellowship so many times that we've gone through a whole pound of salt by now. And so people would realize, wow, you have spent a lot of time together. Like, and we're from the deep south, so a guy said, my wife and I have been married so long, we're on our second bottle of Tabasco sauce. I mean, whatever that means for you to say, we've really spent a lot of time together. We need to spend so much time knowing God and communing with God that we know his thoughts. Like when, when Mary and I were first married, we had to talk about everything. We, we, I didn't, you know, she said, get bread on the way home. I'd wonder what kind of bread, where should I go to get it? How much you want me to get? How much should I expect to pay? But now, it's just only the out-of-ordinary things that we really have to spend time talking about. And probably the same with you and your walk with the Lord. If you spend a lot of time getting to know Him, every day matters. You know, this is the way. Yeah, this is what He would have me to do. 
But those big things, you need to come and lay before him, right? But we really get to know him. But here's the question. What would we know about God if he had not given us his word? The Bible is God's self-revelation. None of us can go to heaven and do an ethnographic research project and come down here and write up a report and tell us what we found. And he knows that. So he revealed himself in his word. The only way to really know God, Romans 1, 18 to 20 says he has made himself known in the things that have been made, his divine attributes, his invisible qualities, Paul says, have been clearly revealed in the things that have been made so that men are without excuse. David said in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Day to day, night to night, pours out, pours out speech. There's no place on the earth where their words have not been known. But what do you really know about him? You just know that he is. You don't know the details. And so he revealed himself. So if I really want to know him, what am I saying to you? I need to know his word. So know God, but to really know him, you need to know his word. You read through it. You pour through it. But even though we believe in the perspicuity of Scripture, that is just the plainness of the words, anybody can read the words and know what they mean if you know how to read English. But to truly get the message of what's being said, you need some help. You remember? David said, Lord, open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your law. We need the Holy Spirit who actually inspired these words to illumine our minds to see what's written on the page. So if I really want to know his will, I need to know him. And to know him truly, I need to know his word. And to truly know his word, number three, I need to pray. I need to include prayer in that whole process. But there's a fourth ingredient we're going to put in our cake, and it's a blessing that all of you in this room have, and it's the graybeards in your life. It's the people with experience in Christianity who've made good decisions. They know you. They've seen you make decisions, and they've seen you zig when you ought to zag, and they've seen all the experiences of your life, and they can't tell you God's will for your life, but they can give you insight. They can give you counsel. They can give you advice based on what they've seen. Don't let anybody tell you this is God's will for your life. They may be selling something. Be very careful if people do that. But certainly ask their counsel. In the multiplicity of counselors, there is wisdom, the Bible says. The Bible also says there is safety. The Bible also says there is victory. In other words, the Bible is repeating to us multiple times through seeking counsel from godly people around us, we have safety, victory, and we have that security of knowing this seems right. Know God, know his word, spend time in prayer toward that end, but seek the counselors in your life. And then number five, look over your shoulder at your life experiences, what Henry Blackaby used to call your spiritual markers. Why has God allowed you the experiences that have made you the person that you are? He is in control of everything that happens in your life, and he has allowed it for a reason. There's nothing wasted in your life. I've had CPAs come to me and say, I've, God is calling me the mission field. Too bad all my training is in being a CPA. And I say, no, it's not too bad. God will use everything that he's given you. And over and over, I see that people take their secular training or their credentials and whatever it is, they bring that to the mission field and they find expression for it. Or they bring it to local church ministry. God gave you those experiences. So look at them. See what they are. Include that as another ingredient in your cake. And then consider your circumstances. Now, some people might call that an open or closed door. 
But you remember Paul said in one case, he said, I'm, I'm going to stay here and minister because there is a great door of ministry open to me here and many people oppose me. Which seems to us like that might be kind of a closed door if there are a lot of people opposing you. But in other times, he had an open door of ministry, but he didn't find the guy he was looking for, so he said, I'm moving on. We can't just go by open and closed doors, right? The, um, what does Jesus call the devil? The God of this age. The prince of the powers of the air. He can control circumstances too. We need to be careful about just green lights or throwing out a fleece. If the phone rings three times and they hang up before I answered, I'll know I'm supposed to ask Jill to marry me. Don't do that. Don't do that to Jill. Don't, don't look for God's will just by circumstances. But circumstances can be things to consider, right? So if you're trying to decide, should I marry Jane or should I marry Jill? And you're really, both of them seem to be interested in you. And so that's really a, a great indicator. But Lord, I need to know which one. Should it be Jane or should it be? But if you're already married to Susie, neither one of those is God's will for your life. So circumstances can help. But we don't want to just make it circumstances. That's why circumstances is not the only one, nor is it the first one. But after we've looked at these other things, we can consider our circumstances. But this next one doesn't sound very spiritual, but it is. It's biblical. I mean, we consider the timing. The, the timing? Yeah, the Ecclesiastes 3 says there's a time for everything. And maybe this is, all the lights are green and you are just thinking this would be the perfect thing to do, but you just have a check in your spirit. This is not the right time for this. And sometimes all the lights are green and the timing may cost you. It may be a difficult thing to do, but you still know it's still the right time. This is the step to take. But examining the timing is at least one more ingredient to consider. Now, if that, wasn't, that one doesn't sound spiritual, the last one really won't. And the last one is simply, what do you want to do? And I ask you that biblically because of Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Henry Blackaby said when his son turned 10 years old, he bought him a brand new blue Schwinn bicycle. And he put it in the closet, didn't tell his son anything about it. And he asked his son at dinner that night, he said, now, son, have you thought about what you want for your birthday? He said, no, dad, I hadn't really thought that much about it. He said, you know, you may be getting old enough to have your own bicycle. Oh, dad, I would love to have my own bike. Can I have my bike? For, can I have a bicycle for my birthday? He said, well, we'll have to see. Just wait and see. A day or two went by and he asked his son, he said, now, if you were to have a new bicycle, what kind of bike do you think you'd like to have? Well, I don't know, dad, there's this and that and the other. And dad said, you know, those Schwinn bicycles are good bicycles. I mean, he said, you know, Dad, those are good bikes. I have a friend who has a, a, a Schwinn bicycle. That would be a great bicycle. Can, is that what I, can I have a bicycle for my birthday? Dad said, we'll see. Hang on. A couple days later, he said, if you were to get a new Schwinn bicycle, what color do you think you'd like to have? Well, there's red and there's, there's green and black. And Dad said, you know, those blue ones look fast just sitting there. That is a good-looking bicycle. And he was just, I'm dad, please. He was begging. He was talking with his mom. He was coloring pictures at school at night before he'd go to bed. He'd say, mom, please talk to dad. I'd love to have this bicycle. And every night at supper, he'd ask his dad. And his dad said, well, I have to see. And then during the birthday party, all the kids are sitting around with their little pointed hats, eating ice cream and cake. Dad disappears. 
and he comes back in with this brand new blue Schwinn bicycle and the kids just exploding around the room, bouncing off the walls. You're the greatest dad. This is perfect. How did you know? This is right. But weeks before the kid even had a desire for that, dad had already bought it and put it in the closet. And then little by little, he began to feed him that desire. He wanted him to, des to desire what dad wanted him to desire because dad had planned that for him, right? A lot longer than just a couple of weeks ago. God had a plan built precisely for you because you are who he's made you to be, and he's got it set back. And he doesn't want you to delight yourself in the world or in the flesh, but to say, Lord, however my life can best glorify you, that's what I want to do. Just nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And when we come to that point, he begins to give us a desire because he wants to give us that desire. Know God, know his word, spend time in prayer, seek counsel, look at your life experiences, consider your circumstances, look at the timing and then look into your heart. What do I want to do? What is the greatest desire of my heart? There are a thousand, thousand voices screaming for your attention all the time. I know. I mean, as, as I travel around like you, also I turn on the television to watch these really wholesome things. We call them football games with these balls with the pointed ends on them. I love that. But you see the commercials, and they're all trying to tell you you have this amazing phenomenal, deep-seated need that you didn't know you had a few minutes ago, and you've got to fulfill this. There's everybody shouting for your attention. Everybody's telling you this is what you need to be a fulfilled and completed person. How do you know which one of these voices to listen to, and how do you know which one God may be using in your life? There are a lot of demands and a lot of calls on your life. You know, in the United States today, I talked this morning about orality, and I said in the United States, over 50% of the people are functionally illiterate. And that is true. 57% uh, of new books are not even read past page 18. And in the United States, 42% of college graduates will never read another book the rest of their life. 80% of U.S. families did not buy or read a book last year. And every day in the U.S., the average citizen watches television for four hours. They listen to something like their iTunes or the radio or something like that for three hours. And they read an average of 14 minutes a day. And that's usually a magazine. The world is shouting at us all the time. And we're letting it. We're listening. And how do we discern God's will and what he wants us to do? We are so busy in life. You know, the 20th century was the first in the history of the English language. It was the first to make the word priority a plural. Now we talk about priorities. And we didn't start out that way as a word, but it is one now, and we all understand it. We talk about our first priority, which is counterintuitive in the use of the word. God's design for Jeremiah's life and his calling to Jeremiah was something like that blue Schwinn bicycle. He had set it back in the closet before Jeremiah's birth, before Jeremiah even came into the world. Verse 4 and 5, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. 
Paul says in Galatians 1.14, he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace. Psalm 139, verse 16, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before even one of them came to be. And that's true for you too. God has a plan for your life in his plan for the world. Matthew Henry, talking of uh, Jeremiah, said, though God had predestinated him to it, yet it was news to him and a mighty surprise to hear that he should be a prophet to the nations. God says, I knew you. He gives meaning to us as human beings in this world by knowing us. Think about that. The God who created all that is knows your name. And every head or lack there, every hair on your head or lack thereof, he knows. He can subtract as well as add. He knows all of those things about you and more than you could possibly even know about yourself before you were even born. He had all of that written down. There are massive worldview implications for that, but we'll, we'll go ahead and jump past that and think about this part where Jeremiah gets this call to be a prophet to the nations. Missionaries today, in a very real sense, are a prophet to the nations. God has a missionary heartbeat. We, should, we saw that last night in Genesis 3.15. You remember the first giving of the gospel, Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelion, where the, the God of all comes as sort of a missionary to hopeless men and women who had sinned beyond grace. In those days, there was no hope. All you got to do is, you know, repent and, and uh, pray the blood of Jesus over at Adam. That's, there was no knowledge of that. And God came and brought hope. We saw the table of nations, the tower of Babel. And then he comes to Abram and says, through you, all these families will be blessed. So we see hope for the nations even through that. Last night, we heard the pastor read to us Psalm 67. We talk about, uh, let the nations be glad. And then tonight, reading in Psalm 96, how another uh, Old Testament passage where we hear God is concerned about the nations. You know, in the, so what we call the suffering servant passages in Isaiah, the suffering servant is Jesus. He is the suffering servant. And in, Psalm, or in Isaiah 49, another suffering servant passage, God the Father is speaking to the suffering servant. And so if Jesus is the suffering servant, in a sense, we get to overhear kind of a divine conversation where God the Father speaks to God the Son, and he says in that verse, it is too small a thing for me that you should be my prophet to raise up the tribes of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations that my glory may be known, my salvation may be known around the world, throughout all nations. Now, if we're wondering whether that really is applying to Jesus, flash forward to where Mary and Joseph bring the baby Jesus to the temple to be dedicated. And there's this old guy there at the temple whom God had told, you're not going to die until you get to see the Messiah. And old Simeon takes this baby Jesus in his arms and he cited that very verse. So if we're wondering whether that applies to Jesus. The New Testament itself tells us that God has given us his Christ to be the prophet to the nations, to raise up the nations that his salvation might be known around the world. We see other people from other nations, not just the Jews in the Old Testament, being included in the people of God. Ruth. 
was a Moabitess. And she is included in the people of God, indeed, in the line of Christ himself. And if we had no other book to show that God is concerned for the nations, we have the book of Jonah. And any of you that are considering saying no to God's call, talk to Jonah when you get home and see how that works out. It does, it, he will have his way. It may not have a happy ending for you, or at least the way that you get there. But the nations needed a prophet. Nineveh needed a prophet. The nations that Jeremiah would preach to needed a prophet. And the nations today need a prophet, someone to speak God's word to them, a mouthpiece to tell them God's word. John 12, 32, we see that God is concerned for the nations. Jesus said, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He didn't mean he's going to draw every single person to himself and everybody that's ever going to be born will be saved. That's not what he's saying. He said, I will draw all kinds of people. Why did he say that? What's the context? What had just happened was that these Greek people, these Gentiles had come to the disciples and said, sir, we would see Jesus. And they didn't know what to do. Here we got these Gentiles coming. So they go to Jesus and he said, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. When John has this revelation of those that are around the throne in chapter 7, verse 9 of the Revelation, he says, After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. The Lord has allowed me to do a little bit of academic work, and one part of what I have studied and now teach is about different cultures. I love all things about cultures. I watch. I'm like a nerd for that. When I go to different countries, ask Mary. We just did this in India. I've done, everywhere I go, I go to anthropological museums. I know that's Disney World for me. I'm telling you, I, I love that. I watch these documentaries on um, television that I search through Netflix and find about different cultures out in the jungles and everything like that. I'm just fascinated by it. And you might say, yes, but cultures are inventions of mankind, and so... They're going to be left behind. But we see in the revelation that's not necessarily true because there was something that John could see around the throne that would be cultural distinctives that survived glorification. He actually realized that there were people from every tribe and tongue and nation, people group around the throne glorifying God in heaven. Something about our different cultures will survive the glorification when we get to that place. So while we're here, the Lord is telling us they must hear the gospel. And he is appointing people to go. And those he appoints, he calls in time, that is in some time in your life, he calls you to the nations. He, so, you know, we talk about being appointed as a missionary don't ever think that is just a man-made thing. It is partially something that man does. Matthew Henry, Henry used to talk about the inner call and the outer call. That inner call is that fire shut up in your bones. It's a sense of the shoulds and the oughts. But the outer call is when those who see you, the gray beards in your church, or those who love you and know you, they're part of your Bible study group, and they put their hand on you and they say, yes, brother, yes, sister, we affirm this call in your life. We agree. We can send you out with a clear conscience that you are appointed for the nations. But before any of those appointments or calls happen, God appoints you 
to do that work. Before you are formed in the womb, he appoints you. Jonah 4, 7, and I love the translation that says, God appointed a worm. And I've often thought that I would love to have that on my tombstone when I die because that's a perfect description of me. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. How might he use you? How do you think God might want to use you in your life for him? Some people say, well, I'm not really sure. I just know it's not to be a missionary because a, a missionary call looks like this. And I have, that hasn't happened to me. I think it's in that book, The Missionary Call, where I included a story from a lady who was a missionary with great distinction in Africa for many years, decades. And she said she woke up in the middle of the night and Jesus was standing at the foot of her bed and said, go to Africa to be a missionary. People hear that story and they say, well, I haven't ever seen Jesus in my bedroom, so clearly he doesn't want me to be a, a missionary. They take something that was descriptive in someone else's life and they make it prescriptive for what a call is. And that kind of confusion keeps a lot of people off of the mission field. But another very unfortunate thing that makes people confuse the missionary call is what really is that? What are, what are we being told to do and who should go do it? For instance, just listen to some of these sound bites from mission conferences. Someone has said, if God has not called you, you better not try to go. It's too dangerous. They continued, but if he has called you, you better not try to stay. You talk about getting a bunch of college students in the paralysis of analysis. They don't know what to do, whether they run this way or hide, or they not. What do you mean? They don't know if they should go. Would that be presumptuous to go, or should they stay back and be rebellious? And they get confused. Someone else said, "No one deserves to hear the gospel twice till everyone has heard it once." So we begin to have that sense of guilt. We feel our arm being twisted behind our back. We we think, "Oh, that means I must go. It's it's on me." Spurgeon, as I'm going to talk a little bit more of the fuller quote tomorrow, but Spurgeon said, and he's one of my heroes. I have his little, his little portrait in my office. Spurgeon said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. We hear that kind of sound by we, Jim Elliott. I mentioned he's one of my heroes from this part of the country close by here. He said, we don't need a call. We need a kick in the pants. He said, I don't need a call. I have a verse. But that same Jim Elliott, he was writing to Pete Fleming. You remember that Jim felt called to go to, to Ecuador. He felt called to go single, but he felt called to go with another young man. And he was casting about trying to get friends to go with him. And he had one that he thought was going to go with him. And he got the mutual irresistibles for some woman and got married. And Jim was like, so he started looking for another guy. And that guy he thought was going to go with him. He got married and he begins to talk to Pete about going. And Pete began to think about it and, and pray about it. And Jim was doing his best to persuade him, and you might even say was giving him the hard sell. But Jim wrote Pete a letter. This same Jim who was saying, I don't need a call. I got a verse. We don't need a call. We need a kick in the pants. This same Jim wrote that letter to Pete. He said, look, Pete, with regard to Ecuador, if God has not spoken to you clearly, I don't have a word for you either. The barriers are too great. The hurdles are too high to not know that God has sent you out. So while we might say in a conference, in a missions conference, these sound bites to stir up the faithful and call out the called, we, when we really 
just get on as face-to-face with somebody. We have to recognize, but God has to give you that sense of affirmation. This is what he has made you to do. But God had that plan for you, your blue Schwinn bicycle in the closet, a long time before you were born. My mom, when I was born, she said when I was born, there she was still in the hospital. She dedicated me to the Lord, gave me to his service. We did the same with our children. And they were never ours anyway. They've just been given to us on loan. They've always been his. But we, we dedicated them to him. And we tried to help them to understand that he is the one who forms a plan for us before we are even born. Matthew Henry had a lot to say about Jeremiah's call and how God had a plan. But I want you to say quickly, Jeremiah's excuse, you might say reason, when God gave him that call. In verse 6, Jeremiah said, Oh, Lord, God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. Age is no barrier to God. He's not looking for your youth or your senior status. He is not looking for your ability. He is looking for your availability. So age was not a barrier for Moses. Moses was 80 when God called him for the greatest service of his life. Abram was 75. We talked about him last night when God called him. But neither was the youth too great a barrier for Jeremiah when he said, I'm just a young guy. And it wasn't too great a barrier for Timothy either. Paul told Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. But some young people that go with us, very, very young men who go with us to train pastors, you can imagine how awkward that will be if they're 20, 21 years old and we're training men who are in their 50s who literally bear on their body marks of serving the Lord, that it would be a little difficult. They've never had ministry experience. They've not finished their seminary training to to sit down and train these kinds of men. So we find other ways for these young guys to be involved, but they do find ministry involvement, whether or not they're sitting down training a 60-year-old pastor or not. But there is wisdom. And I think Jeremiah was, was showing, not necessarily an excuse, but he was recognizing that he was a young person. Matthew Henry said, those who are young should consider that they are so. They should be afraid as Elihu was and not venture beyond their length of years. Maybe it was just a call for divine assistance. You remember Solomon? Remember he said he was young and now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. And then consider God's response. Verse 7, and the Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. God wasn't telling Jeremiah that he would have an easy way, and I'll deliver you from every difficulty. That, That would have been a lie. God doesn't promise any of us an easy road. In fact, he promises us a hard road. Jesus tells us this will be a difficult world. We will have tribulation. What he's promised is that he will be with us in it. Deuteronomy 31.8, the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. 
Do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. His ministry, Jeremiah was going to learn, was going to be a hard and lonely ministry because of his message. He tells us in Jeremiah 15, 17, he would have a difficult message to preach because in Jeremiah 16, 2, he was forbidden to marry. So he would be alone in his ministry. And because Jeremiah 26, 2, virtually everybody is going to be against him because his life was in danger on many occasions and because his last preaching was done with the people of God in exile. And he finished in a very difficult place. A lot of missionaries are that way. People you support from this church, I am sure, go through some very difficult times. Reaching out to them, sending a letter, an email, a text message, posting on their Facebook page, getting in an airplane and going to visit them is a cup of cold water in Jesus' name that you can never imagine how precious it will be. And I suspect in glory, you will share in the rewards they receive for their labors on the field because of the encouragement that you gave them. We are simply to go where God leads us, to do what he tells us to do, to be what he tells us to be, and to say what he tells us to say. To not be afraid, although there will be times when we are afraid. We're to remember the commandments not to be. John Calvin said, no greater affront can be offered to God than to give way to fear as if he is not exalted over all creatures so as to control them. He is in control, and he who is in control of every detail of this universe said, do not be afraid. Remember the 40 years of wandering that Israel went through in all of those desert graves? Because why? Because they were afraid. And they did not trust God to go with them into the assignment he had given them. The last two verses, I'll share these and we'll look for a place to land the airplane here. Verses 9 and 10. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over the nations, over kingdoms, to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Just imagine the courage that you would have if you knew that God himself had touched your mouth and said, go, I'm putting, putting my words in your mouth. Does that remind anybody else of Isaiah 6 when the, God sent the angel to pick up with the tongs the coal of fire from the altar and to touch his mouth, to, to cleanse him and to appoint him and to anoint him to do his will, to preach his word? God is still appointing people. The nations still need a prophet. They still need God's mouthpiece, if you will, to take them the message. But what I'm here to say tonight is this is not necessarily going to be a nice, easy path. One country where a friend of mine has served for many years, he said, and this is in the northeast of Africa, he said, as far as he knows, every single person he has ever won to the Lord has been martyred. And he said, the life expectancy of a new believer there is 45 days. And he said, they know that when they come to know the Lord. Now, it's difficult for them. But, you know, like the martyrs of old, they go with joy, with courage. They consider themselves 
blessed to be able to serve the Lord in this way. But for the missionary who is leading people to the Lord, knowing that you're leading them to their death, it begins to take a toll. We met some missionaries that were being reappointed after some long-term counseling because they had served as missionaries in a drought-stricken area where their mission agency would send a truck to go through the bush country of that part of Africa and fill their cistern with water, and it would be enough water probably to last the month for their family if they were very careful, but they wouldn't see the water truck for another month. Very isolated place. And as soon as the water truck would leave, people would start tapping on the door. That night when they would sit down to eat, people would come and they would be begging. Before the month was out, they would be holding a weak child, a sick child. Before the month was completely out, they would say, please, he's dying. And there was no scam. They'd look at the child. They knew this child was dying. This child may not last the night. And then they would see the other people behind them. And even though they looked over their shoulder and they saw their family sitting around the table with something to drink, they knew if we give out any more, we're not going to have enough. We're going to fall apart. We're... And it took a toll. They resigned, broken, went back to the States and had to have, as I said, some long-term counseling to be restored before they could go back. It's draining. It's hard knowing that you're leading people to their death or that you're going to places where you have to make those kinds of choices on a regular basis. Mary and I were just in a very, very desperately poor area of India, and it was startling. We've seen poverty. We've been around the world. We've seen terrible poverty, but not on this scale. Not on this scale. And just, I mean, it, it just, it bothered me for days. It messed me up a little bit. I'm, I'm still haunted by some of the pictures of, uh, that are in my mind of some of these people. And I thought, what if I lived there? And I was a minister in that area. How would you ever sit down to a meal or sleep in a clean bed or know that your children had medical care knowing that you're seeing just mile after mile of people living with no water in cardboard or brick or pieces of wood stacked up that is their home, and that's all they have in the world, and that is all they will ever have in this world. It's not an easy existence. One lady, we talked about Ecuador. Let me tell you her story very quickly. She went to Ecuador in 1901. Why is that a big deal? Because from the time the Spaniards came in 1532, you could not legally be anything other than Roman Catholic until 1901, when the president at that time signed a new constitution to allow Protestants to come in. And the first four Protestant missionaries came into the country. A couple stayed in the port city of Guayaquil, and they started a church there. And two single ladies went up into the mountains in a place called Caliata to work with the Quechua Indian people. She goes up there to, they go up there to work, and one of the ladies died within just a few months of tuberculosis, exacerbated by the cold, very harsh climate in the high Andes. But the other single lady... Julia Anderson Woodward, she continued to work, and she retired in 1953, 52 years at it. And when she retired, she said she could count on one hand the number of people she thought she might see in heaven. Think about that. You see your colleague died. She married along the way. That's why her name was Julia uh, Anderson Woodward. She married along the way, but he died shortly after they married, he was someone who was in the Spanish language training school, and her agency asked her to help teach in the training school. She met this guy. They got married, and then he died. And then when she finally did retire in 1952, after 
half a century of service with very little to show for it. Coming back to the States from Miami back to Kansas City where her home was, everything that she owned in the world, the only picture she had of her husband, the only picture she had of her colleague, friend, her New Testament she had translated during all those years, everything that she had, the airlines lost her luggage and has never been found. And you think, why would that happen? Why would God let someone go through that? You know, just a handful of years after she retired, in fact, before the decade was out, an awakening kind of started among the Quechua people. And it began to spread, and it brought unbelievable persecution when it came that we won't talk about here, uh, in mixed company especially, but just terrible persecution was poured out on the Quechua people, but they didn't care. And the more they were persecuted, the more they grew, and that awakening spread what one person wrote their dissertation on that story, and they called it a spiritual prairie fire was the name of it because that's just how they described it. It's kind of like the Welsh revival that happened years ago. But all those seeds had been sown for 52 years as she faithfully served, translated, shared the gospel without seeing the fruit herself. And every time you see this great movement of God, if you think of it like a graph, and then there's this peak, a great movement of God, what you need to remember is the left side of the graph. Those missionaries that are serving faithfully, pastors, church planters, disciplers, who don't ever see a lot of fruit, but they're doing the faithful work of preparing for the spike in the graph that's gonna come somewhere along the way. God is calling people right now, maybe from this room, to go and work in some difficult places. So I don't wanna come this weekend and say, go, go to the nations, it'll be just like your birthday party for the rest of your life. It's not necessarily gonna be that way. And I'm not going to say that you're going to see these massive revivals. You may be on the left side of the graph. But if you don't go, who is going to go? Honestly, I think, I mean, just think about it. You're hearing the challenge. You have God's word in front of you. He's stirring hearts in this room right now. And if you don't go, who is going to go? And if you don't give to help others to go, who's going to do that? And if we don't do it starting this weekend, when is it going to happen? Somebody's got to ask and answer these questions. Well, I'm asking, and I'm asking you to answer. We want to shine his light to pierce the darkness, knowing that the devil hates us and has a horrible plan for our lives, and we're doing nothing but throwing gasoline on the fire when we do that. God's heart beats for the nations. And if our heart is going to beat in tune with his, we need to have hearts that break for the nations as well. We need an open Bible in this hand and an open newspaper in this hand. We, God can't lead you based on information you don't have. We need to be aware of what's going on in the world and say, God, how do you want to use me? And I still hear people who will say, but brother, I don't hear anything. I don't hear him calling. I haven't heard that missionary call. I said this morning, I like Manhattan, and I, I don't want to live there, but I do like to visit there. I love the city. I love the diversity. And there was a guy who said he's walking down the street in Manhattan. If you've ever been there, you know it is just pandemonium. It is just craziness incarnate. There's sirens and buses and subways going under the street, people shouting, 
honking horns. It's just craziness all the time. This was lunchtime around town, uh, Times Square. They're walking down the street. This guy and a friend of his who's a Native American indigenous guy. They're walking down the street. And the Native American guy, in the midst of all that pandemonium and chaos, he said, I hear a cricket. He said, you do not hear a cricket. He said, no, I hear a cricket. He said, you can't hear a cricket. He looked over. Outside of this big hotel were, were these two planters with, you know, the tree kind of things in them, the bush sort of things. And he walked over there, and he reached under one, and he came back, and he said, see? He said, how did you do that? He said, what do you mean how did I do that? He said, is that like magic? How did you hear that cricket? And he, he said, ah, and he reached in his pocket. Now, with, with the horns and the, the sirens and the subways and people screaming and hollering and running everywhere, in the midst of all of that, the guy reached in his pocket and grabbed out some coins and dropped the coins on the sidewalk. And when they hit the sidewalk, every head within 30 feet turned to hear where the money came from. And he looked at his friend and he said, it just depends on what you're listening for. God is calling, and he's calling right now. And the only way you can know that the still small voice is the one that's saying, this is the way, walk in it, is to get as close to Jesus as you can and stay there. If he's not calling you to the nations, he doesn't want you to go, and I don't either. But if he's not calling you to go, he's calling you to send, as if souls depended on it. What's he calling you to do? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for the great privilege, once again, Lord, of being able to do, be a part of what you're doing in this world. Father, would you just hear me say before these witnesses right now, as I've told you many times, I will go anywhere, anytime, and do anything you say. Make me know plainly, Lord, to go or to send, but I am yours. And I pray that this is the heartbeat of every person here. Don't let us go out of this weekend the same way we came into it. I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.